Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and woo, it's been a little while. Since our last episode, we paused for Thanksgiving break and I celebrated my birthday with a whirlwind tour of New York City. If you aren't already following the Land of Desire on Facebook, I posted a few great sites from New York City related to previous episodes of the show, so check them out. This week, we're continuing our series, A Tour de France, which follows the original route of the 1903 bicycle race around the countryside. Along the way, we're learning about some of the more unexpected and unknown corners of France. And at each landmark, we'll explore a native dish which represents something distinct about that region. This week, our riders leave behind the fast-paced Mediterranean hustle and bustle of Marseille, cross along the southern half of the country, and make their way into a land with only one language in common with the riders. Good food. On July 8, 1903, the first riders arrived in Toulouse one week after departing from the tiny village of Montgeron. After 785 miles, that's a century race ridden every day for a week, everybody, the men were, to put it lightly, starving. For all the joy that the bouillabaisse of Marseille can bring, it's not exactly the kind of hearty fare that can sustain a man on a 100-mile-a-day race towards insanity. Luckily, the riders were now deep in the heart of farm country, where the average calorie needs of local farmers were pretty similar to those of suicidal athletes. Leaving behind the sparkling blue waters of the Mediterranean, the men now encountered miles and miles of unspoiled farmland, gentle rolling hills scattered with livestock as far as the eye could see. They were now in the heart of a land once called Gascony, once called Aquitaine, and only relatively recently called France. Welcome to Toulouse, the capital of the Ocatanier. The great food writer Waverly Root once divided France into three great domains, the land of butter, the land of oil, and the land of fat. Paris, of course, is the land of butter, where locals stuff themselves on croissants and classic butter-based sauces. Down south in the Riviera, like all Mediterranean cuisines, cooks begin with olive oil. Now, however, the cyclists were entering a new culinary world, a world of hearty peasant dishes based around one essential, unforgettable ingredient, animal fat. Cooking with fat, Root wrote, is likely to be the result of poor land and poor people, who therefore have resorted chiefly to the economical meat makers, the pig and the goose. As the cyclists locked up their bikes, they caught a whiff of the famous regional dish, the dinner of legends, the meal that launches wars, the entree which drove me to Paris before driving me into a coma, before driving me to try recreating it at home to mixed results $100 and 100 hours later. The ineffable, unbeatable cassoulet. Cassoulet is a stew of white beans and Toulouse's famous garlic sausages simmered in a staggering amount of goose or duck fat, 
often topped with a leg of duck confit, and if you're thinking, yeah, that sounds pretty good, but I wish there was just a bit more duck fat in there, well, they'll slice some local foie gras on top just to make sure you develop gout before you ask for the check. Listeners, it's divine. In cassoulet, the so-called economical meat makers reach perfection. Cassoulet comes in three varieties, and depending on whether the chef is a native of Toulouse or a transplant from Cassonnerie or Carcassonne, he or she might prepare the stew differently, with a bit of lamb or a bit of duck fat instead of goose fat. And if you think this is a tiny detail, you've never met a French cook. As the chef André Daguin once said, Cassoulet is not a recipe, it's an argument among villages. Regardless of which recipe you follow, the end result is the same. Some white beans simmered for hours and hours in a broth of salty pork fat and the fat of all the other animals grown around those parts, until a crust forms on top, which is broken and mixed back into the stew over and over, building flavor every time. The best restaurants simply add more meat and beans to the pot when it starts to look empty without ever taking the pot off the stove, or heaven forbid, washing it. Last year, my boyfriend and I went to one of the older French restaurants in San Francisco, Le Central, which sold its cassoulet for $13 to celebrate its 13,000th day of simmering. I can still feel that dinner in my heart figuratively and literally, because I think it blocked one of my aortas. As always, Julia Child said it best, Cassoulet, that best of bean feasts, is everyday fare for a peasant, but ambrosia for a gastronome, though its ideal consumer is a 300-pound blocking back who has been splitting firewood nonstop for the last 12 hours on a sub-zero day in Manitoba. Wiry cyclists riding 100 miles a day on dirt roads decades before the invention of Gatorade or protein bars were probably the next best candidates. The 1903 Tour de France cyclists stepped into whichever village restaurant was closest or whichever restaurant had the most intoxicating scent flowing out of the kitchen, and they began preparing their orders as they walked inside. It wasn't until the moment that the cyclists stepped up to greet the waiters that the cyclists would have looked around, overhearing the conversations at the buzzing tables around them. Turning back towards the waiter with a panicked look in their eyes, the cyclists realized they didn't understand a word anyone was saying. Without knowing exactly where or when, the cyclists had crossed one of the great invisible borders of France. They had entered the land of Auk. In the year 1794, the revolutionary priest Henri Grégoire spied a threat to the fragile new French Republic. While for freedom, France is at the forefront of nations, she is still, for language, the Tower of Babel. Wishing to unify the new nation and empower her citizens to converse easily with one another, Abbé Grégoire conducted a survey of the nation to find out whether the French population could understand itself. After all, he wrote, the feudalism which broke up this beautiful country carefully preserved this disparity of idioms as a means of enslaving the peasants and chaining them in place. How could the common people rise up against tyrants if they couldn't even speak to one another? 
Funnily enough, the anti-monarchist priest was echoing the wishes of a very unlikely sort of bedfellow, the king himself. Over 200 years earlier, King Francis I declared French the official language of the nation, her mother tongue. But what was French exactly? To put it simply, and possibly tick off a lot of linguists in the process, French in the age of King Francis I was simply the local dialect, or patois, of Paris itself. The Renaissance king wanted easier paperwork, the revolutionary priest wanted easier rebellion. Across 200 years of bloodshed and upheaval, one thing remained the same. It didn't take long to travel beyond the borders of French and into the realm of local dialects, patois, and other languages altogether. So the abbé decided to take the lay of the land by sending out a questionnaire to a series of associates scattered across the country. The questionnaire contained 43 questions about the patois and the mores of the people of the countryside. The questionnaire included questions like, is the use of the French language universal in your area? Do you speak one or more patois? Does the patois vary a lot from village to village? Do the countrymen in your region also know how to speak French? Did the local priests once preach in patois? Have they stopped doing so? The results of Abbé Grégoire's survey were shocking, even worse than he suspected. Only one French person in ten spoke French. While most of the population could muddle along with some choice phrases, in everyday situations, most folks relied on their local patois or another language. At least one-fourth of the country spoke French with the kind of fluency you displayed last time you tried to impress a date at a fancy restaurant, only to end up with a plate of calves brains instead of a hamburger. It turns out the so-called mother tongue started to fade away not far beyond the borders of 1794 Paris. So if the French weren't speaking French, what were they speaking? Here are just a few answers. Le bas breton, le normand, le picard, le ruchy, le champenois, le maçon, le lorraine, le bourguignon, le lyonnaise, le dauphinois, le basque. Yet one tongue rises above all the rest. The abbé Grégoire referred to it as a patois, which is to say a local dialect, a bunch of cobbled together street slang. But this is an insult and a lie. The greatest competitor to so-called pure French in 1794 was much more than a bunch of local expressions and nicknames. It was one of the great languages of the world, one of the original Romance languages, and the birthplace of the first literature which could be called truly French. When the Abbé Grégoire received his surveys, the greatest threat to French linguistic unity was clear. The mother tongue of southern France was not French. It was Oquetin. To understand the story of Oquetin, we must travel back even further than the French Revolution, all the way back to the 5th century. In the dark days of the 400s, northern France had an annoying issue, the Germanic hordes. Over and over, the Germans would invade, plunder, sack, and muddy up the local language with their own. 
German influence over spelling, pronunciation, and grammar eventually left northern France speaking an entirely different language than their southern cousins. The differences were as simple and fundamental as the word yes. Up north, the word for yes was oui. Down south, the word was ok. One thousand years after the Germanic invasions, King Francis I tried to force the nation to adopt his own native northern language, since, muddied and Germanized as it was, the language of oui was the language used in Paris. Yet, even as King Francis pronounced his version of French to be the official language of the nation, a new nickname was emerging for the southern half of his kingdom, Languedoc, that is, the language of Oc. Such a place name wasn't just a harmless designation, it was a warning. To name a province Languedoc is to warn northerners that they are entering the land of Occitan. Depending on who you ask, Occitan could be considered the fifth beetle of the Romance languages, the forgotten founder who faded away from the public view as others went on to eternal glory. However, I like to think of Occitan as the David Lee Roth of the Romance languages, the brilliant founding member who achieved worldwide fame before being officially replaced and treasured in the hearts and memories of millions. As early as the first millennia, Occitan made its way throughout southern France, northern Spain, and the Basque region, and even western Italy. Occitan was so frequently spoken, so grammatically consistent, and so widely understood that it ushered in one of the most profound developments in the history of Western literature. Prior to the rise of Occitan, the only common tongue which was mutually intelligible to a large number of people was Latin. By the year 1100, however, Occitan was so popular that it was finally possible for artists to try something new. What if art was composed not in the stodgy high Latin of the church, but in the everyday vernacular language of the people? While Dante receives a lot of credit for publishing his Inferno in the Italian of his day, he was actually building on a precedent set over 300 years earlier by a group of groundbreaking poets, the Troubadours. Ah, Troubadours, I hear you say. Does the word ring a bell? Are you picturing some sad-looking man in a tunic plucking forlornly on a lute in a drafty castle? Yeah, that's the one. Kind of. Troubadours were poets and performers who wrote long, lyrical works about chivalry and courtly love. The very word troubadour is, in fact, a French loanword from Occitan, from the verb troubadour, which means to compose. The term troubadour is a bit like the term impressionist. It was originally a nasty nickname bestowed on a group of artists by skeptics and critics until the artists decided to just own it. We'll probably never figure out exactly where troubadours came from, and there's about 15 different competing theories. But one thing we do know is that the first celebrity troubadour, the Elvis Presley of his time, was Duke William IX of Aquitaine. Yes, that's Eleanor's grandfather. As one writer paid tribute long after his death, the Duke was one of the most courtly men in the world, a fine knight-at-arms, liberal in his womanizing, and a fine composer and singer of songs. 
When he wasn't trying and failing to lead doomed crusades, William IX composed pieces like this. Joyous in love I make my aim, forever deeper in joy to be. The perfect joy's the goal for me, so the most perfect lady I claim. I've caught her eyes, all must exclaim, the loveliest heard or seen is she. Okay, it's pretty good. I probably wouldn't want to listen to it for three hours while I'm trying to enjoy a medieval feast, but most medieval lords and ladies preferred these prototypical love songs to yet another sermon. During the 13th century, the global age of troubadour poetry, any educated European person considered Occitan the highest vehicle for modern poetic expression. To speak in Occitan was to display one's education, one's refinement, one's intelligence. The same way modern culture vultures might learn Italian to show off at the opera, lords and ladies and anyone who was anyone learned Occitan to show off at, you know, the jousts. Latin was for the church, perhaps, but Occitan was for the king. But then again, Occitan was also for the common man. Okitan wasn't just a dialect or a patois. It was a genuine language, and it was spoken by just about everyone south of Paris. For the first time in European history, the language spoken in everyday life was the same language used to convey the highest literary arts of the age. Only after troubadours finally fell out of fashion did the northerners have the opportunity to shift the linguistic momentum of the nation. After all, Paris wasn't about to acknowledge the superiority of Southern French, which is how you end up with King Francis I signing his ordinance that the written language of the French kingdom shall be French, which is to say, his French. As Abbé Grégoire himself announced in his declaration to the revolutionary government of 1794, do you think I am told that the residents of southern France will be able to leave behind the language they cherish? Their language, well suited to the genius of a people who think sharply and express themselves sharply, has a syntax in which we find less irregularity than our own language, and by its richness and their dazzling prosody, their language rivals the gentleness of Italian and the gravity of Spanish. We would probably speak the language of the troubadours if Paris, the center of government, had been situated on the left bank of the river. Yet, let us not insult our brethren to the south by thinking that they will reject any idea useful to their country. They have rejected and fought against political federalism. They will fight with the same energy a federalism of Petois. Our language and our hearts must be in unison. Yeah... We'll see about that. To a few of the old-timers in the restaurant that day in 1903, the Tour de France cyclists rustled up memories of another stranger from a strange land on a strange journey. Only a few years earlier, another cyclist on an insane, impossible quest passed through Toulouse. While the 1903 Tour de France remains a myth and a legend in the history of cycling and the nation itself, this other, earlier pioneer has almost been lost to history. But this mysterious traveler was on a journey more brave, more interesting, and, as one historian put it, more heroic than that of the Tour de France. 
If the Tour de France cyclists were racing against one another, this earlier cyclist was racing against a much more formidable opponent, time. Before his name is forgotten, therefore, I'm determined to do whatever I can to preserve the curious tale of Edmond Edmond. By the early 1890s, Abbé Grégoire's efforts to unify the French language were succeeding, due mostly to the introduction of compulsory elementary education for young children. In school, children were rewarded for speaking so-called standard French and punished for speaking the language of their parents and neighbors. All across the country, regional languages were dying, quickly. While the Abbé would have been thrilled at the prospect of so much linguistic unity, linguists were devastated. Everything which made their line of work interesting, the quirky local vocabularies, the invisible boundaries where one patois ends and another begins, the unexpected commonalities, the unique ways of seeing the world which are made possible only through different languages, all were in danger of disappearing forever. Worse yet, linguists weren't even sure anymore what they were in danger of losing. Other than Abbé Grégoire's survey a century earlier, nobody was quite sure who was speaking what. With this in mind, the great sociolinguist Jules Gillioran came up with an absurdly ambitious project. He would find out exactly what people were speaking in every corner of the country, whether they spoke standard French, what they taught their children, and then he would plot all of this geographically, resulting in the linguistic atlas of France. To accomplish this, however, he needed help. Empathetic as he might be to the needs of dying languages, Jules Gillioran was nevertheless an elite, and he'd spent the past decade teaching dialectology in Paris. Rural farmers were less likely to open up to him, and if they did, he feared that his own extensive linguistic training might influence his records of what he heard. Gillioran needed a field assistant. Luckily, he already knew the perfect man for the job. In the tiny town of Saint-Paul-sur-Tenoise, 150 miles north of Paris, French was a foreign language. Saint-Paul-sur-Tenoise had an unhappy history. Originally a part of the Netherlands, in 1537, she'd been burned down by the French. Fifty years later, she was burned down by the French again. Ten years after that, it was Spain's turn to burn the town. Forty years after that, Saint-Paul-sur-Tenoise was burned down accidentally, because apparently this town was constructed entirely out of matches. Eventually, in 1702, the French took possession of this small town for good, though she still managed to get occupied by the Prussians and then the English during the reign of Napoleon. Suffice it to say, by the end of the 19th century, the local patois of Saint-Paul-sur-Tenoise was a very curious mixture indeed. The 3,000 residents of this tiny town spoke a fascinating garble of loan words from all the languages of her previous conquerors, sprinkled in with some fun slang of her own. In the 1870s, the Saint-Paulloise Patois caught the ear of one of her own, the local baker Edmond Edmont. Edmond Edmont was himself the victim of bureaucratic tyranny when it came to spelling and grammar. His family's name had once been Demont, 
but somewhere along the line, a clerk mixed up the first two letters of the family name. Objections were nothing against faceless bureaucracy, so Edmont the family became, and Edmont they remained. Edmont seemed destined to continue in his family's footsteps, running the local bakery, never setting foot outside the borders of St. Paul, except perhaps for an excursion on his proudest possession, one of the newfangled bicycles taking the French countryside by storm. Yet, Edmond and Mont had a secret hobby. He loved language. In particular, he loved saint Pauloise and took great pride in the unique flavor of his local patois, and he decided to document its grammar, its vocabulary, and its idioms before the state stamped it out altogether. In the early 1880s, Edmond published his first serious linguistic work, a dictionary of Saint-Paulois. A few years later, he published a collection of local tales and legends written entirely in Saint-Paulois. By the end of the 1890s, this curious local baker caught the eye of serious linguists around the country, and Edmond began receiving awards, cash prizes, and invitations to join prestigious linguistic circles. We don't have any record of the reaction in Edmond's hometown, but considering the shame which was beginning to accompany most usage of local dialects and patois, it's not actually certain whether Saint-Paul regarded these works as tributes to their local language or embarrassing exposés of their backwater ignorance. Regardless, Edmond Edmond continued to work in his bakery, but his heart was set on grander sights. Jules Gillieron, by then one of the most distinguished linguists in the country, read Edmond's dictionary of Saint-Paulois with great interest. Here was a man with a gift, he thought, a man who could truly catch the sounds and patterns of a local patois without being influenced by outside spelling and grammar, who could record speech truthfully without making subconscious corrections or exposing a hidden bias. Better yet, Edmond Edmond was a rural man, unassuming and unpretentious, the kind of man that anyone would feel comfortable around. Gillioron figured rural men and women would feel more comfortable speaking in their native patois if they knew that the man they were speaking with spoke his own patois as well, and did so without shame. Gillioron wrote to Edmond Edmond at once to ask whether he would be silly enough to leave his life in Saint-Paul-sur-Tournoise behind and embark on a heroic, absurd, linguistic Lewis and Clark mission across the country. For a man who had spent his entire life in a town with a population smaller than my high school, to Edmond Edmond, the idea must have sounded like a wonderful dream. In August 1897, at nearly 50 years old, Edmond Edmond stepped away from his bakery and dug his trusted bicycle out of the garage. Filling his saddlebags with food, writing paper, and maps, this linguistic explorer set out on a quest to visit just about every corner of France in order to record the local language honestly and accurately without prejudice or agenda in the name of science. Whereas Abbé Grégoire's survey reached just over 100 different locations around the country, Edmond's journey included no fewer than 992 different destinations. At each stop along the way, Edmond would seek out the locals and start a conversation. 
as the men and women of each town and rural village relaxed into their everyday patterns of speech, Edmond transcribed everything they said phonetically, using a complex and extensive shorthand, so that back in Paris, Gilliron could understand exactly how these words sounded. The journey took four years, in which Edmund recorded speech patterns in 639 places, taking thousands and thousands of pages of notes, which were mailed back to Paris, all while he cycled on and on over the paved streets, cobblestone paths, and dirt roads of the French countryside, Belgium, Alsace, Switzerland, and even the Channel Islands. In 1901, Edmond Edmond's 992 notebooks formed the backbone of the work which would change the field of linguistics forever, the Linguistic Atlas of France. On each page of this atlas, readers found a map of France labeled with a word or a phrase like be or go get it. Then sprinkled across the map were the local terms for that word or phrase. The atlas was published over the course of eight years in no fewer than 13 volumes, and it captured the speech of a nation as no earlier linguistic study had ever done. As the noted scholar Mario Roquet once wrote, the shape of the atlas is no less precious than its contents. It allows us to grasp linguistic phenomena in relation to one another, the territory, or the local history of the region. In this way, the atlas allows us to reach, in the final analysis, the social life, the intimate history of the countries of France. The linguistic atlas of France was monumental in every sense of the word. A few years after the final volume of the linguistic atlas of France was published, Edmond Edmond finally returned home. He found a sample which had been irrevocably changed by one force even more powerful than the classroom, the battlefield. World War I scattered young men who had never left their small town all across the battlefields of France and beyond. Young men who would never have dared leave the lands of their fathers returned home, if they returned at all, speaking snippets of English, German, and of course, standard French. Saint-Paul herself suffered as though it were the 16th century all over again. Stuck in between the French front lines and the famous poppy fields of Flanders, Saint-Paul experienced the kind of carnage and destruction unseen since the days of the 16th century. In this new and unfamiliar world, the comfort of Saint-Paulois grew precious to the locals, and Edmond Edmond became a hero for his role in preserving this slice of the past. Between 1918 and 1925, Edmond Edmond served as the mayor of his beloved Saint-Paul-sur-Tournoise, spending the rest of his life helping his town recover from World War I while cleaning up the town archives, the library, and the local museum, and while continuing to record everything he could of his beloved Saint-Paulois patois. For over 40 years, Edmond wrote the local paper, hundreds of pieces recording fables, vocabulary words, and more in the local dialect. His famous notebooks and index cards from the four-year journey across France were stored in the National Library. 
After retiring from the position of mayor, the famously broke Edmond received an honorary title of archivist librarian with a pension to keep him comfortable in his old age. Edmond continued to work steadily till the end. In his last few weeks, he put the finishing touches on a report regarding a local monument, before finally passing away at the age of 77. The village of Saint-Paul-sur-Genoise paid for Edmond's funeral and named a street after their great native son. However, by the 1980s, Edmond's tomb had fallen into disrepair and neglect. On January 21, 1984, Edmond Edmond's 135th birthday, his descendant and fellow passionate local historian Marcel Bayard paid tribute to his honored ancestor in a local speech. Stirred to action, Saint-Paul-sur-Tournoise organized a fundraiser and restored Edmond's tomb to its rightful glory. As Mario Roquet once wrote, Latin has replaced on the soil of Gaul all her native dialects. In this total assimilation, the Roman administration, commerce, the army, and the schools played a great part, but the mode of assimilation, of conquest, hamlet by hamlet, individual by individual, escapes us. We only have one way to understand it. We look around ourselves, look at the agony of our patois, and see it yield, word by word, sound by sound, to the language of the state. Yet in 1903, all was not yet lost. When the first Tour de France passed through Toulouse, over 100 years after Abbé Grégoire conducted his survey, between one-third and one-fourth of the population of France still spoke Occitan. In fact, without even intending to, the writers had been using Occitan words for the last few days already. When the writers rested in Marseille, another city of the Occitanier, the writers ordered a bowl of bouillabaisse, topped with aioli, while feeling the whipping winds of the mistral on their face. When the French speak of bees, eagles, and pheasants, they speak in Occitan. When the French declare their love or their pain, when they remark on flowers or the heat, they dip into Occitan. And of course, when French people stroll into a tavern in Toulouse, they ask for a dish of the showstopper of Occitan cuisine, le cassoulet. If you find yourself cycling into Toulouse today, worked up into a hunger, make your way just outside the city limits to the Marché du Gras, the fat market. Fat ducks, fat geese, and their fat livers are all available for sale. Christmas is prime foie gras season, as everyone splashes out on dinner a little bit and drives away the cold with enormous quantities of animal fat. Here in the fat markets, the local gavis, men and women who fatten up the birds, display their wares. These are the same markets which catered to the Toulousian taverns of 1903. Local cooks from the restaurants and taverns of today still arrive early to get first dibs on the best birds. Duck confit, that is, duck legs preserved in duck fat, will be snatched up along with the prized foie gras. At home, 
the local tarbe bean will sit on the stovetop all day, absorbing the flavors of locally grown birds simmering inside a traditional ceramic casserole, which exposes more of the stew to the surface. It kind of creates this delicious crust. After the crust has been broken and stirred back into the cassoulet the traditional seven times, the cassoulet will be served to hungry locals, tourists, and long-distance cyclists. Inevitably, someone in the dining room will make a claim that their hometown cassoulet is superior. As the food historian Toussaint Samant once wrote, each has its fanatical supporters vehemently defending their faith. Every little local district proclaims that it alone practices the true right. People can discuss the matter of cassoulet for whole evenings on end as passionately as they will discuss sport. Unfortunately, these days, those arguments will be mostly conducted in French. Oketan is fading away, though passionate locals are still raging against the dying of the light, just as Edmond Edmond served to preserve his own patois 100 years earlier. Today, local elementary schools teach Oketan to young children, radio stations broadcast in Oketan, the metro stops are all announced in Oketan, and the street names are written twice. You can buy books in Oketan. Nevertheless, most Oketan dialects are considered endangered, and only about 100,000 speakers survive today. In the 21st century, one particular region of France has lost 8% of its native speakers of Oketan each year. While France may pay lip service to its rapidly dying regional dialects, skepticism remains as to whether anyone in Paris really mourns the loss. After all, the oldest piece of active legislation in French history is King Francis's Ordinance of Villers Cotterets, establishing French as the official language of the nation. It is still legally recognized in French courts of law today. Meanwhile, in Toulouse, Saint-Paul, Alsace, Brittany, and all the pockets of France in which native languages are withering away, passionate historians and linguists continue to build on the legacy of Edmond Edmond, writing down words, phrases, grammatical structures, idiomatic phrases, anything they can document. They build digital databases. You can read the history of Oketan on an Oketan language version of Wikipedia. But everyone knows it's a race against the clock. As Edmond Edmond wrote in the introduction to his dictionary, mourning the loss of his own dialectic legacy, it is more than time to collect these records because each year that passes carries with it sounds, constructions, words, whose loss is irreparable. And perhaps before half a century has passed, the fatal substitution of French for the local language will be accomplished. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. Next time, we'll continue our tour of France as the cyclists of 1903 pedal on to Bordeaux. In the meantime, don't forget to sign up for the next edition of The Land of Desire newsletter at www.thelandofdesire.com newsletter and check out our Facebook page. This is a great time of year to revisit episode 15 on the history of that classic Christmas treat the Yule Log. 
If you eat one this year, please post a picture on the Facebook page so we can all get hungry. Until next time, au revoir!